Good morning, everybody. It's good to see that so many of you have come out to worship this morning, and a special uh, welcome to visitors. And I hope uh, you visitors received a special warm welcome as you arrived. I guess uh, uh, being friendly and welcoming is a little more difficult now with COVID, and uh, we hesitate as to which is the best way to approach it. And so forgive us when we are uh, hesitant, but uh, our hearts and a hearty welcome to all of you. It is good to get together to worship in the house of the Lord. And it is a blessing to experience a revitalized feeling as we sing uh, together and hear the message. Let's take a quick look at our bulletin. In Boundary Trails Hospital are Leona Berg and Betty Reimer. Please remember them in prayer. Preston and Myra Wheeler are our highlighted missionaries this week. We heard them report to us just recently, so remember to pray for them in their important work. It was brought to my attention that we are in great need of Sunday school teachers and a Sunday school superintendent. Please pray that there will be volunteers and maybe you're one of them, that feel called to fill this important need. Then uh, Salem Homes is celebrating their 65th anniversary along with Salem Foundation, their 20th. That event is planned for Wednesday, September the 15th from 5 to 7 p.m., and there will be a tent on their parking lot where that will be held. Communion service uh, is planned for Sunday, September the 19th. That is three weeks from this Sunday. And so please check the bulletins for any further information that you uh, look for, and please take note of all the birthdays. I noticed there was a dozen this week, and uh, also the anniversary of Frank and Edna Peters. Congratulations on their uh, anniversary. In our prayer this morning, I will start with a prayer for the church. And when I come to the part with the words, as you taught us to pray, using the English, uh, the King James Version, Join in aloud in the Lord's Prayer with me. Please bow with me in prayer. Thank you, Lord, that you are always near and hear our prayers. We thank you for the rains we have received and pray that we remain in your favor. Now, facing further restrictions due to COVID, we pray that we will be able to continue to meet in church to worship. Lord, we pray for Leona and Betty, who are in hospital, and we ask that your healing hand be upon them. We pray for our missionaries, Preston and Myra, who are again facing further COVID challenges. Give them the guidance needed to further your word in the mission. We pray that you give Pastor Vic the words you have in mind for us this morning as he continues to minister to us on the letters to the churches. Lord, guide us as we begin our personal preparations for the upcoming communion service in remembrance of your sacrifice for our salvation. So this morning, we come before you with the Lord's Prayer as you taught us to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Good morning. Please join us as we um, sing, Come, Now is the Time to Worship. are able, we ask that you stand with us and let's sing. Let's sing to the Lord with all of our heart and mind and strength. Living life. 
break the pieces, fit them together, making us lovely. seated. Good morning. Are there any children that want to come up to the front for our story? Welcome. Yes. Thank you for joining. First of all, I would like to thank each of you for praying for the VBS and supporting us for the cookies you brought and for standing behind us. We had a blessed time the last week with VBS. So, did any of you make gardens this year? What kind of plants did you plant? Corn. You did plant corn? No, I didn't plant corn. Okay. And maybe, hopefully, we have been able to, to get some vegetables from our garden already and eat of them. That's always, that's always the, the goal of it. When we have a garden, we want to have the fresh produce. So, do you ever wonder how plants work? I do, when I work in the garden. You see, I brought a corn plant this morning. We planted a small corn kernel in warm, moist soil, and it grows. First, a small leaf appears, and then more, and a stalk appears. It grows several feet high. And I just want to make clear, I'm not a farmer or a scientist. I don't know how plants work, but I have my thoughts when I see plants and when I work in the garden. So, the stalk grows, and out comes the tassel. It comes out kind of pointed, but then it spreads, and it's full of little flowers. These we, we don't see them exactly as flowers, but, but there are little flowers in there, and they have pollen. As the tassel grows in the plant, a little corn ear comes out on the side here, and sometimes more than one. And as it grows, corn silk comes out. It looks really pretty when it starts, but then as it grows, it becomes different. As the corn silk comes out, the tassels on top drop pollen, and the pollen drops onto, gently onto the corn silk here. So in the husk here, there's something very, very unique. It's all planned very nicely by God. He, there is lots of lines of spots, and each spot is tied to a separate corn silk. So now when the pollen drops on this corn silk, it goes, to, each one takes it to its spot, and then it grows a kernel. Now if some corn silk doesn't get the pollen, then there is no kernel to grow. Kind of like this one. It looks really nice, doesn't it? But, if we open it, see, you see all the silk there, and each one goes to a kernel. But somehow, some of this 
these silks didn't get any of the pollen and see all the empty spots here. Let's see this one. Same thing. I wonder what happened that they didn't get the pollen. Let's check this one. My, it looks good. All full, right to the top. So now, we realize that the pollen from the top has to fall on the silk to grow, and maybe those ears were kind of low and hidden by, or, yeah, hidden by the leaves, or I don't know what happened, but if I would plant this, this corn all by itself on a field, and it would grow nicely. But we know it's quite windy sometimes. And then the wind would come and the pollen is kind of light. It's a dust and it would blow the dust, the pollen dust, who knows where. What a chance is there that each silk of this would, would get some pollen? I think the chance is very small that, that lots of it would fall on, on this ear here. So, then, if I would plant an acre or a big patch of corn, all kind of little spaced, but so that they are kind of close together, and the wind would blow, then all the tassels would kind of move, and there would be lots of pollen to go around for all the corn silk that was sticking out of the ears. And we would get lots of corn. So now, I think that's a little, I compare that to Jesus and families and Jesus and the church. If I would be all alone someplace as a Christian, no one to share with, no one to support me, how would that be? It would be pretty lonely and I guess I would get discouraged and maybe my Christian life would die. But if we are together as a church, as Christians who love the Lord, and I think that's how God also planned the family. He made moms and dads and children to stick together and help each other. Then we can grow and be blessed. So, maybe next time when we see a cornfield, we could think of church people, Christians, and families staying together, loving each other, and blessing each other. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have showers of blessings for us in store. We're here to receive them. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry, I forgot. I have the Bible verse where Jesus says, a new command I give, a new command I give you, love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John 13, verse 34 and 35. Good morning. Uh, just one more no- uh, comment about the VBS. It was a very, very good week. Uh, we had nine children, but we're going to be giving you a little report in the next week or two, so stand by for that. The Bible reading for today is from Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God, and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, 
and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Thank you, Mrs. Engbricht. Well, good morning again. It's good to be here, and it's good to see your faces. This is uh, part three of of our look at Jesus' letter to the churches in Revelation 1 to 3. I chose Revelation chapter 1 again for the scripture reading to keep us aware of who it is that writes Uh, wrote this letter. And we began this little journey in mid-July with a look at the holiness of God. And then wondering what a holy God might have to say to his people, uh, we looked at the beginning of Revelation. And uh, we listened to chapter 1 in our scripture reading to get a glimpse of Jesus. And we find that Jesus, like the Father, is also holy. Then we worked our way through each address to the seven churches, taking a brief look at Jesus' assessment of each church. As I said last time, there's much to look at in these seven addresses, but we focused on what Jesus commends and what he condemns. The purpose of this sermon is to spend a little more time with the application of Jesus' words to the churches. How should we then live? Well, what does Jesus commend? To review, 
we discovered that Jesus values patient endurance or perseverance. Um, as I was looking for a way to uh, give more breadth to, to my understanding of patient endurance, I came up with this. Waiting with complete confidence in the promises of God regarding the outcome of our suffering while sustaining continual effort in withstanding prolonged affliction. If you like fewer words, hanging in there, toughing it out. <laughs> Jesus values this, and he mentions it of several churches. It will remain to be seen if we pass the test, but I think many of us are confident that we are such a church. And so let's encourage each other in that. Jesus commends those also who hold to the truth, who do not put up with evil behavior, like eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality, nor does he, toler does he tolerate false teachers and commends those who don't. Uh, he commends the practice of confronting evil behavior and false teaching, testing those who claim to be apostles to see if they're actually genuine. There's commendation for holding fast to the name of Jesus and not denying the faith, even under the threat of death. Uh, to say it another way, uh, you could say being loyal to Jesus and refuse to stop believing in him. Jesus commends love, faith, service, and those who have not soiled their garments. Well, what does that mean? Well, in, in this very letter, uh, white garments seem to uh, reflect or represent righteousness. So it would seem to me that those who have soiled their garments are those who have uh, soiled their... Sorry, let me start that again. Those who have soiled their garments are the righteous who have returned to the sins from which they have been redeemed. That's, that's one interpretation. And Jesus commends those who don't do that, right? Don't soil your garments. You've been redeemed. Don't go back to your sins. Well, we won't look at all of these in depth, uh, but let's look at one of these that might be a bigger challenge for us. Um, we understand love and faith and service and endurance, uh, at least by definition, and I'm hoping also in practice. Um, but how have we done when it comes to confronting evil behavior and false teaching? What do we do when we see our own people engaging in it? Do we ignore it? Do we gossip about it? Do we just leave it? Hope it goes away? Part of the problem in addressing this is that we have adjusted our concept of evil. Influenced by the world around us, we have learned to reserve the word evil for the worst sins, but not all. <clears throat> for years, we have been cultivating something called gray area. And in this gray area, we toss all the things we want to keep doing, but we don't want to call them sin. Things like lies, gossip, greed, the pursuit of power or influence or wealth so that I can have my way, selfishness. We also throw false teachings into this gray area, like universal salvation or doctrines of hell or homosexual marriage or how many roads are there to God. All these things have been kind of labeled gray area, implying that where there are multiple interpretations we can't really take a position, and therefore no sin is associated with these things. Hmm. Any theology that at its root asks, did God really say? <clears throat> I think we can confidently assume is from the father of lies. We have become weak in identifying sin as sin. And we don't have to look at others for that. We, we, it will keep us busy enough if we look at ourselves. The Apostle Paul 
shapes our understanding of evil when he writes in Romans 14.23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Mm. <laughs> How do you like that? Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If the thoughts that I think and the words that I say and my actions are not in keeping with uh, what we read in the scripture that we say we believe, then it is sin. And I know this opens up a whole bunch of questions that we're not going to answer today. (laughs) But I would encourage you, uh, make this a topic of conversation, maybe around the dinner table today or sometime with friends or family Uh, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And talk about that. What does that mean? Using scripture's definition of sin and the practice, uh, well, definition of sin and righteousness, of good and evil, how are we doing at confronting sin and the practice of evil? How are we doing? Do we challenge false teaching when we hear it? And how do we do it? As Mennonites, I think we have a bad habit of letting things slide because we don't like confrontation. We think that not confronting someone is somehow a peacekeeping measure. We're not going to rock the boat. We're not going to make trouble. Well, it's not. It does not make peace. It just delays the confrontation and allows sin to fester, or worse, we become convinced that it's not sin anymore. And we've done that before. The other hindrance we have toward confrontation of sin is to throw around scripture verses like, don't judge, don't don't judge. (laughs) If we give in to that, we will never grow as a body. Judging is a necessary part of the Christian life, which sounds contrary to what you've heard, but let me explain. We do not judge the souls of people or their motives. We cannot judge what we do not hear or see. God is the judge of all souls, and we don't know a person's motives unless they put them into words. What we ought to judge are words and actions. If Victor Engbrecht does or says something, you can take it and hold it up next to the scripture and go, okay, this lines up, or wait a minute, this doesn't line up. And then you have made a proper judgment, and then you can come to me and talk about it. You might remember some time ago when I told you that one night I went to a bar in Winnipeg at 2 in the morning. And it wasn't just any bar. It was a gay bar. If that was all you knew, I would expect every one of you to come to me and confront me and say, Victor, what were you doing there? The purpose of confrontation is accountability, is uh, to understand, to encourage us all to, to live a holy life and to be reconciled to each other and to the Lord. The goal of confrontation is always restoration. If you found out that my reason for going to a gay bar at two in the morning was for my own pleasure you would have good reason to reprimand me and encourage me to repent and correct my behavior. If I told you that a friend called me at night to pick him up from that bar because he was too drunk to drive home, then you would have a valid reason for me being there at that time. Judging is necessary. We need to be aware of what must be judged and what must not be judged. We need to be clear about that. We judge words and actions, not people and motives. And knowing this will help us to confront with confidence uh, because we know then that it is the right thing to do. Another important thing about confrontation is knowing how. Excuse me. 
We often think of confrontation as combative. It does not need to be combative. In fact, it should not be combative. Again, it's the goal is restoration. Confrontation should be done with gentleness, kindness, mercy, and love. A genuine desire to see, to see us reconciled and in right relationship with the Lord. It should be done without accusation or the assumption that you already know everything. Always give the other person the benefit of the doubt. If you go to your brother assuming that you have a good expl- that there is a good explanation, then you have a better chance of restoring relationship. The first thing you do when you confront is you look for information. Hey, I saw you at the bar at two in the morning. Uh, what were you doing there? If you ask the question, assuming that there's a good explanation, <clears throat> excuse me, then you are less likely to accuse. How we ask questions is very important, and making accusations should never be a part of this process. Revelation twelve ten refers to Satan as the accuser of our brothers. If we accuse our brothers, we are simply joining Satan in his work. We don't want to do that. Let people explain their own actions without assuming there's any evil intent. If there is, they will reveal it. You don't have to assume it. This will go a long way to building the body of Christ. It will build trust. It will build a sense of belonging, that we belong to each other. And it will build spiritual strength into this body. So let's learn to confront evil and false teaching, judging what we ought to judge, words and actions, and not people and motives. By the way, we recently did a confrontation project in the library. There was research done and an evaluation made on a number of authors. Some of them were deemed theologically sound. Others were maybe a little bit questionable. And a third group were deemed as false teachers. So we got rid of the books by the false teachers, and we have a reference binder in the library that alerts us to read certain authors with discernment. The follow-up question, however, is what is our mechanism or our process of discernment for bringing new material into the library? How are we going to continue to confront false teaching? We have to be awake. Confronting evil behavior and false teaching is one of the things that Jesus commends in his letter to the churches. He likes to see us doing that. And so it's important for us to learn this so that we do not soil our garments. Or as James puts it, to keep oneself unstained from the world. So that was one thing that Jesus commends that I thought would be good for us to look at and evaluate how we're doing. What does Jesus condemn? The first thing Jesus condemned in that first church, Ephesus, was the failure to love. The church at Ephesus did all kinds of good works but had forgotten to love. Jesus also condemned eating food sacrificed to idols, sexual immorality. These are the rituals of idol worship and ultimately unfaithfulness to God. He condemned the tolerance of false teaching in the church, which lures believers away into idolatry, right? So if we, if we put up with false teaching in the church, it's going to lead some people away. Jesus also condemned a dead faith, those whose works are incomplete, and whose faith has been lulled to sleep so that they are unable to discern truth from falsehood. Dangerous place to be. And Jesus condemns those who think they are prosperous and have no need, all the while they do not realize that they are totally wretched and desperately needy. 
If we don't see ourselves as needy, there's a problem. If we're willing to see ourselves as we are, we will probably find ourselves guilty of most of these things that Jesus condemns. And I want to look at two of them. Love. Have we forgotten to love? Can we claim to love each other if we are unwilling to confront sin? I was on a roll. Where are we? (laughs) If we're willing to look at ourselves, we'll probably see ourselves guilty of most of these things. Right. And so we're talking about love. Have we forgotten to love? We maybe don't think so, but maybe there's something we can look at yet. Can we claim to love each other if we're unwilling to confront sin? Right? If you're not willing to confront me about my sin, do you love me? Ephesians 5 says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. If we have the mind of Christ confronting sin is a must. It is, in fact, an act of love. To let sin fester within the body is to promote the disintegration of the fellowship of believers. To love is to confront sin and root it out. It has no place in the body of Christ. At the same time, am I willing to be confronted about sin in my life. Refusing to be confronted is itself sin. If I don't allow others to confront me, then I am harboring sin within the body of Christ. If we love each other, we need to learn to accept confrontation for the purpose of restoration. The goal is good relationship and a clean church for Christ. Are we content to give Jesus a dirty bride? Have we forgotten to love? These are not easy questions to ask or talk about, but I would encourage you to talk about these things. Ask these questions. And then read the scriptures and then let them scrutinize us to reveal if there is any wicked way in me. The second condemnation I want to look at is Jesus' disapproval of idolatry. Idolatry is not just a sin. It is the sin. Idolatry is the sin that is addressed by the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The other nine commandments tell us what it looks like to have no other gods besides the true God. So how can we identify idolatry in our own lives? The question is not whether we do it. I hope you're not too shocked by this. (laughs) We all do it. And I'll show you that in a minute. The question is how do we recognize it so that we can turn from it? The way idolatry is described in the Bible, we get the sense very much that it is related to a physical image and to, to practices like, like bowing down to an idol or praying to an idol or offering gifts or incense or some sacrifice. It also includes eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. But I think we also sense that it goes beyond the physical realm to what is taking place in the human heart. What is taking place in your heart and my heart? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 1 at verse 18. In this letter to the Roman church, the Apostle Paul describes what the idolater looks like. Chapter 1, verse 18. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forevermore. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God... God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. How does that all begin? Verse 25. By exchanging the truth about God for a lie. So let's ask the question again. How do we recognize idolatry in our own lives? We often don't think of ourselves in terms of what we just read. But our propensity is to do those things. There's a pastor, a Baptist pastor in North Carolina by the name of J.D. Greer, and he came up with a quiz to help us identify if there's idolatry in our lives. And I found the heading on his website amusing. It said, this nine-question quiz will ruin your day. (laughs) So, And I'm sorry I didn't hand this out to you. If you want this list, I'll be happy to share it with you. Um, Anyways, here's that test. And make sure that you're honest with yourself. Just because... uh, Not every answer is an idol, but listen to what he says. What is the thing I'd be most worried about losing? What is the thing I'd be most worried about never attaining? What would I change about myself right now if I could? Throughout my life, what have I been most willing to sacrifice for? What has made me most bitter in life? What can I not forgive? What am I willing to lie for? We lie to protect something. What am I willing to lie for? Where do I turn for comfort? 
and whose approval do I seek? As you look over your answers to this test, notice that if you have the same answer uh, three or more times, then probably that thing is an idol for you. There's likely nothing wrong with your answers in themselves, but when those things have ultimate worth and weight in your life, they displace God and they become idols. Um, here are a, new, a few more idolatry questions. Um, I'll just read them here. I've got seven. What am I afraid of? What do I long for most? What do I complain about most? What angers me? What makes me happiest? How do I explain myself to others? What causes me to be angry with God? I think that all of us practice idolatry a lot more often than we think. And let me show you what I mean. I suggest to you that every time we sin, we commit adultery. Not adultery. Idolatry. Every time we sin, we commit idolatry. Because every time we sin, we are saying, I know better than God. Or we are asserting our authority above God's authority. Knowing the will of God, we make a conscious decision to go against him. We dethrone God, we put ourselves on the throne, and we obey our own commands. We put our assessment above God's assessment. We put our desire above God's desire. We put our commands ahead of God's commands. We become the idol that we worship. Every time we sin, we commit idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. So what's the solution? Should be easy, right? To stop sinning. (laughs) Out of the seven churches to whom Jesus wrote, only two were not admonished. The other five whose actions Jesus condemned, to them he said, repent. Repentance is a must if we want to receive the rewards that Jesus has in store for those who conquer Repentance is crucial for our triumph over evil. It is not a one-time event. It must be a continual practice. And I believe that the practice of repentance is what made King David a man after God's own heart. Because he repented, he could continue to walk in righteousness. The man who does not repent remains in his sins and cannot partake of the kingdom of heaven. Repentance is key for a successful and triumphant life in Christ. And so therefore, if you are willing, I invite you to join me in reading a prayer of repentance. You should find it in your bulletins. I have adapted it from Daniel chapter 9, in which Daniel confesses his sin and the sin of his people. And in the same way, we too may confess our sin and the sins of our people. Would you please stand and let's read it together. O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and your rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our fathers and to us. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, 
open shame because of the treachery we have committed against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. We have all transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. You have confirmed your words, which you spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the bondage of sin with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, we have sinned and done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, Let your anger and your wrath turn away from your people, because for our sins and for the sins of our fathers, your people have become objects of scorn among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayers of your servants and to our pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the people that are called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. For your own sake, do not delay, O my God, because your people are called by your name. Our Father in heaven, it is with broken and penitent hearts that we bow before you today. You have shown yourself holy and revealed to us our sin. In your great mercy, Father, forgive us. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness and make us pure and clean in your sight. Help us to love one another with a deep love that refuses to be content with sin in our midst. Help us to confront one another in love with brotherly affection for the good of the body. And help us, Father, to resist every inclination to dethrone you and break the first commandment through the practice of idolatry. Help us to see the idols in our lives and humble ourselves before you, the great and awesome God. You alone are God, and it is before you that all souls will stand. In your great mercy, make us clean, make us holy, Make us one. We ask these things in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus. All glory and praise be yours. Amen. You may be seated. Please sing with us. Hear the call of the kingdom. Hear the call of the kingdom. Lift your eyes to the king. Let his song rise within you as a fragrant offering Of how God, rich in mercy, came in Christ to redeem All who trust in his unfailing grace Hear the call of the kingdom to be children of light With the mercy of heaven, the humility of Christ Walking justly before him, loving all that is right, that the life of Christ may shine through us. 
Hear the call of the kingdom to reach out to the lost with the Father's compassion in the wonder of the cross, bringing peace and forgiveness and a hope yet to come. Let the nations put their trust in Him. King of heaven, we will answer the call, we will follow, bringing hope to the world filled with passion, filled with power to proclaim salvation in Jesus' name. King of heaven, we will answer the call, we will follow, bringing hope to the world filled with passion, filled with power to proclaim salvation in Jesus' name. Would you stand and please receive the benediction? Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a good week.